In my Bible, I have navigated to Acts chapter 17, and I'd like to ask you if you would please join me there. Acts chapter 17. Uh, two Sundays ago, we studied in our lesson Proverbs chapter 7 and six steps that lead to sin. During that study, we said that one of the steps we take in the process of committing sin is concluding that we won't be caught. Uh, or at least that nothing's really going to come of this. There won't be any consequences or any lasting consequences for our actions. Ultimately, it'll, it'll be all right. And to demonstrate the foolishness of that kind of thinking, one of the things we did was look at God's promises to Israel in Deuteronomy 28 specifically, which is that lengthy chapter of, of blessings and cursings. So part of that chapter is spent... God saying, if you will live faithfully to me, then I will bless you. And these are all the ways in which I'll do so. But God also making it clear to them that if they broke covenant with him, he would curse them. Similar to that, as truly as there is a heaven, there is also a hell. And so we spoke in that lesson for a few minutes as well about our motivations what motivates us to do what is right instead of what is wrong? And one of the things that I mentioned to you was how I, uh, early on in preaching, decided that what I wanted to motivate people by was I wanted to motivate them to love God by telling them about God's love for them and the great sacrifice of His Son. I wanted people to decide to bend the knee in service of our King by telling them about their great and merciful and compassionate king. And I wanted them to desire an eternal home in heaven purely because God is there. And he wants us to be there too. But, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even though those may be the motivations that we want to work with, that we want to be what moves people, or at least the motivations that they ultimately need to come to, there is still a need at times to motivate sinners to repent by warning them of the alternative to all of those things. Warning them of eternal punishment, of banishment outside of the kingdom of God, away from an eternal home with God, away from the presence of that great merciful God who has now punished them with his terrible justice. So even though we would very much prefer to convert people because of their appreciation and love for God and his blessings, often enough, we need to tell people that they've got to start doing what's right because the penalty for doing what's wrong isn't one that they're going to want to pay. So sometimes, instead of just painting a picture of the beauty of heaven, we have to warn them about the horrors of hell. And to me, that raises a pretty logical set of questions. How do we best do that? How do we best do that? How do we talk to people about hell? Warn them in a way that is wise. That's the question that I'd like for us to consider this morning. Very glad to have everybody here. We've got some visitors with us, although I think all visitors are familiar faces. Um, we're glad to have everyone here this morning. Beautiful day, frigid day. And there's more cold coming 
Ohio, but it's nice to, to get to be with all of you and to see the sun shining as beautifully as it is. So to begin this morning, let's look at a few uh, pertinent passages. First of all, Acts 17. In Acts 17, this is where Paul has traveled to Athens. He is intent on preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Athenians, who are, of course, uh, distinctly Gentile, distinctly pagan. And in Acts chapter 7, Paul is in the midst of the Areopagus, your version may say, or it may say Mars Hill. And in verse 30, as he comes to a conclusion to his remarks, he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Stop there. There are a couple of things about this, this text and what Paul has to say to them that are interesting to me. To start, this is Paul's first occasion to speak with these people. And he brings up the judgment of God. It's the first time he's talking with them and he brings up God's judgment. In his uh, speech to them, he talks about this, this unknown God of whom they've been ignorant. And then as the message culminates, he says the time of God overlooking ignorance has passed. And he's calling upon all men to repent. And he goes on then to talk about judgment. And he says that God has appointed a man by whom he means Jesus, of course, as the judge of all men. And that's the basis upon which he's going to call them to repent. What is interesting to me, if you look down through that text or look up here on the screen, is, is not just the fact that here in Paul's first address to this group of people, that he brings up the judgment that this one true God is going to one day bring about. That's interesting in and of itself. But also, to kind of just enhance that, he only alludes to Jesus to this point. Not even mentioning him by name yet. Now, it's true, you keep going on in the text, they're going to interrupt him because they're just so upset of the thought of the resurrection of the dead, uh, which they deny could ever be possible because of their Greek background, the philosophies that come with that, all that stuff. But uh, what I want you to see is, is this idea of judgment and God's judgment is so foundational in the presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ that Paul could even talk about the fact of, of judgment and the idea of being judged by Jesus who'd been resurrected from the dead, but not yet really have even gone into who Jesus is. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Judgment is coming because of a man. Hasn't even really gotten into who Jesus is, but he's gotten into the judgment. Something that that just emphasizes to me is how fundamental this concept of judgment is. And this idea that God is going to come in judgment upon all men everywhere. It is a critical component of the, the good news of Jesus Christ. More on why that is in just a moment. A second passage I want to bring up as we're introducing ourselves to this subject is in Acts 24 where Paul is on trial, standing before the procurator Felix. 
In Acts 24 and verse 25, it says, As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. It goes on to talk then about how Felix doesn't really mean it. For about a couple of years, he's going to periodically summon Paul, and Paul's going to get to talk with him about these sorts of things. But behind it all, Felix is hoping that Paul's going to come to understand the way things work around here and line his pockets and give him a bribe for either you know, favorable treatment or uh, favorable treatment in court, maybe release, etc. Nevertheless, what you see in all of this is that as Paul is presenting the gospel, what does he talk about? He talks about righteousness and self-control. Those are familiar, of course. That's usually someplace near where we start, I think. Then also the judgment to come. Just as fundamental. So as much as it's easy for me to recognize that the, the righteousness and living in self-control, denying sin, and living as, as Christ would have me to live, it's, it's easy to understand those are fundamental components of trying to talk with somebody about the gospel. So also is judgment. And I don't know about you, but I need to appreciate that more. That as I'm trying to understand the, or help someone to understand the nature of the gospel and the nature of the kinds of things that they need to understand as I'm teaching them the good news of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, that the judgment has a, has a part in that. The reason that is so is because this whole idea of the good news of Jesus Christ assumes the existence of bad news. And if people don't understand what the bad news is, if they don't understand what the problem is, if they don't understand that they are sick, then they'll never turn to the great physician. If they don't understand the bad news, then the good news of the solution to the problem that they don't appreciate isn't going to seem all that necessary. I know for me that if I'm not careful, what I want to present people with is the good news of the gospel. And I want to, I want to do that sometimes without showing them why that news is just so good after all. Why it's so important. To do that, I have to present them with the problem of sin. And the good news of the solution that is found in Jesus Christ. Now the good news is that Jesus Christ is king. But the reason that that good news is relevant to this situation is because he's king, he can conquer things like sin. So he is our way to stand before God on judgment day without fear. That's what makes the good news, at least in part, so good. So those two passages there, they make pretty plain, I think, the, the foundational nature of the subject of judgment. And of course, along with it, hell. I think those verses show you there can be a need to address those subjects early on as you're trying to convert people and convince them that they not only need to just do what's right, but they need to be saved from something. So exactly how do I do that? What's the way in which I can, can uh, handle this uh, best? So I want to start with something obvious. Uh, that you find in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Colossians 4. Paul there is giving some final instructions to his brethren. He's wrapping up this epistle. And in chapter 4 verse 2, he says this. 
Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Then he goes on to say this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the reason we bring up a passage like this is we're talking about this particular subject is because there is, of course, a lot of judgment involved in how you talk with someone. Paul is acknowledging that. And using judgment to talk about hell and the, the final judgment, logically, is very important. Um, I, I know from experience, if we're not careful sometimes, it's easy to go to one of two extremes. So, for example, we might perhaps be too soft with people when it comes to a subject like this. Um, it, it's easy to be worried about, you know, I want, I want to handle this right, I want to handle this okay, and I know this is an offensive topic to people, and get too worried about offending people or making them mad or telling them something they're not going to want to hear that may shut down the study that you have with them in that opportunity. And worrying about that is only compounded when the person that you're talking to is, is not just somebody that you've met and you know they wanted to have a study, but it's someone you know, maybe someone you love dearly. And you can get so worried about upsetting that person, especially when you care for them so much and, and so much is riding on this, that you end up being too soft and, and, and almost don't talk about judgment much, if at all. Have you ever made that mistake of just allowing the person that you're studying with to, to, to think that they're fine? Not really bringing it up to them, not impressing upon them the importance of all of this, thinking, I'll get to this when the moment seems right, and then the moments evaporate because eventually they're just no longer interested in the study. It's not a pressing matter to them, perhaps. Other things are because I didn't convey to them how critical all of this is. I leave them thinking it's not all that big a deal. They can deal with this another time or they're, you know, they're probably okay. Uh, we didn't really talk about the sin they may be in, the misunderstandings of Scripture. Didn't get into the, the importance of the judgment day that's coming. And maybe they leave thinking that by and large they're, they're all right in their life. When because of what I know about them and what the scriptures say, I know better. But I'm, I'm worried and, and scared about offending them and handling it in the wrong way and, 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 and go to that extreme of being too soft and the opportunity's gone. There is, of course, the other obvious extreme where you can be so hard about this sort of thing that you come across as, as repulsive as uncaring, as unconcerned, perhaps even combative, maybe just out to prove the point, just out to be the one who's right, and all the rest of you are wrong. Um, I think I, I mentioned to you Wednesday night in class, maybe it was the previous Wednesday night, I think it was this one, about someone that I know who thought that a perfectly good conversation started with someone off the street was, do you know that you're going to hell? Now, they didn't say it in a, in a way of, you know, how's about that? 
It was, it was compassionate, or at least an attempt to be compassionate. Do you know? They were worried about that. Do you know that you're lost? That was the conversation starter. Think about what Paul is saying here. Walk in wisdom. You have to use wisdom and make the most of the opportunity. I, I wouldn't deny that perhaps that individual had some success here or there with that approach. There might be the person that they talked to. Now, that was exactly what they needed to hear. But at least as, as I'm trying to operate in wisdom and think about things, I know what's going on in my life. My days are busy. My mind's occupied. I'm thinking about a whole bunch of things. You may have seen the, the, the bumper stickers or the, the memes or whatever that talks about being kind to everyone that you meet because everybody's going through something. Everyone's dealing with a problem that day or, or you know, just in life in general. So treat them right. If they cut you off on the highway, maybe they didn't mean to. Maybe they've had a really bad day and you don't need to add to it by honking at them and like people do in town, you know, obscene gestures and stuff like that. Um, so walking up to someone like that and striking up a conversation that way when you have no idea what's going on with them that day, what relative may have passed away, what moments they may have had with their family that, that, that day that they wish they could do differently, what may be going on with work. I don't think that's wisdom. Got to use wisdom and make the most of the opportunity. Because sometimes the one opportunity is all you see. He says, make sure that you always let your speech be with grace and season it as with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And it seems to me it'd be good for us to talk about some of the problems that come about from going to both extremes. And that's what I want to do with the last few minutes we've got. So as an example of being too soft, let's go over to the book of Ezekiel, if you will, please. Ezekiel 33. Sort of a classic passage that it would be good to be familiar with is found in that chapter. And I want to start reading around verse 7. But before we read those words, I, I, there are several places in Ezekiel's prophecy where he mentions what we are about to read. Making the same basic points. Several places. Emphasis, right? When you repeat yourself, you're trying to emphasize something. So as Ezekiel speaks on God's behalf in Ezekiel 33 and verse 7. He says, so you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. That's God saying that to Ezekiel. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Verse 8. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. The whole point Ezekiel's talking about here is pretty easy to understand. But God expects us to warn others about God's word and, and, and what he's made clear in it regarding sin and, and the judgment to come. He wants us to be a watchman, a watchman on the wall, looking out for the enemy, ready to warn anybody when the threat's coming. If a watchman falls asleep on his duty, there's, there's just not much worse that he could do. 
A watchman who falls asleep and doesn't watch, that's literally his whole purpose for being. That's his one job. So a watchman who falls asleep and doesn't watch, or who even sees and doesn't warn, that's, that's even worse. You fall asleep while you're just incompetent. You refuse to warn, that's evil. You did nothing. You saw the enemy approach and you didn't sound the alarm. It's, it's unimaginable in a time in a city like theirs. That's the imagery that's, of course, behind all this. So it's very serious, this idea of being God's watchman. And that there are people out there who are in danger. And the enemy, of course, in their life is sin. And God is going to come in judgment upon that sin in their life and upon them. And here they are, going through their lives, blissfully unaware or just perhaps choosing not to think about all of it. And you and I can see the danger. And how often don't say anything at all. That's one extreme to be cautious of. Which I think does bring up a question. Why is this so hard to do? It's hard for me. Maybe it's hard for you. Maybe, maybe you've worked through this. And can do this as, need, as you need to. I'm guessing it probably still isn't easy. Why is it it's so difficult for us to talk to people about God's judgment, about the fact that, that we need to, to make our lives right with God? Why is that hard? I will tell you, sometimes it is easy uh, to, de- to deceive myself, to, to talk real big about it, especially when we're here, especially when here. Surrounded by people who are you know, either nodding their heads um, or, or uh, paying close attention, you know they're, they're on your side, you know they're in agreement. Um, it, it can be easy to stand up and speak about false doctrine or, or this or that group that teaches this or that, and you know they're wrong and what we're doing here is right. It's really easy to be forceful about all of that here, to be firm about what is right and what is wrong here. But when I'm actually with those people, we've been talking about and studying about and, and saying that they're in the wrong, which implies they need and, and, and saying that we're doing what's right, which implies they need to hear from us. But when I, once I'm actually amongst those folks, whether or not they hear from me when I'm among them is when I'm really going to prove whether or not this stuff does actually matter to me. I think perhaps the main reason most of us don't speak out is is just the most obvious one. And that's because we live in a society where everything about our culture and our country uh, blinds us to certain things. Uh, I'm thankful for the country I get to live in. Very thankful, especially considering the price that's been paid by many before me. Price I've never had to pay. But in our culture, what's the big thing that this country is based on? individual freedom individual liberties and what happens in a culture that's defined by that is you carry that out into everything including even as it's come to be one's relationship with God so you and I as blessed as we are to live in this country live in a country where nobody has the right to tell me religiously what's right or wrong that's my individual liberty and I'm very thankful the government doesn't tell me how to worship God 
But you carry that out to as how it continues to, to, to carry that thought out to, to its um, ramifications when people get it out of its uh, proper boundaries where nobody has the right to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Who are you to tell me? And perhaps we can become affected by that. Interestingly enough, people in other cultures, especially non-democratic cultures, though I'm not advocating for that sort of thing, they don't have as much of a problem with this. They have problems all their own. And again, I prefer our system of government, but, but faith is integral in many societies like that. Not all of them, by all means, but, but more often than not, it seems, whereas in, in, in democratic modern societies, we've begun to reject religion more and more with each passing year. That's our society. You have, you have to realize that the people you're talking to, they're obvi- it's obviously their society as well. And they've been brought up with those defense mechanisms and all. And if I'm not using wisdom about where they're coming from, then I'm not likely to be very effective with that person. Now, also in all of this, if I'm not careful, I can lose sight of what the ultimate goal is. Where I'm trying to talk with somebody who is in danger of of losing their soul. And when I'm doing that, my ultimate goal is to help them to be right with God. To talk with them about that. Now, if I do and I try that and they get offended, and who are you to tell me, etc., etc., to be able to say, you know, I did Ezekiel 33. I told them. They didn't want to hear it. But I told them. I can go ahead and check them off the list now. It's easy to say, you know, I told them about the judgment. I told them that they're lost and they didn't respond well. It must be that they don't have a good and honest heart. It must be that they have a hard heart. Loads of people do. But it can be easy to fall back on that card. To sometimes justify my lack of wisdom, perhaps my lack of preparation in approaching them. I suppose another extreme that we have to watch out for is when it just becomes a matter of being the one that's right. I think that happens perhaps most often early on when you're trying to talk with people. And these aren't a lot, you haven't had these kinds of conversations a lot. And you're trying to get out there and trying to speak with people, trying to convince them of what the scriptures say. You know they're going to disagree with you, so you're trying to get your arguments lined up so that you can, you can make your case for what the scriptures say. And it can begin to be about arguing that point and being the one that's right. I've done that. Um, Sometimes it seems people need a target. They need a threat to defend against or as if they don't feel that they're teaching the gospel. I've got to be, as Ezekiel 33 talks about, a watchman. I've got to defend the truth. But in doing that, I have to do what Paul says and and use wisdom in all of this. And wisdom seems in short supply sometimes. Maybe a better way to say that, though, is it appears to be underemployed. God has promised us if we'll pray for wisdom, he will give it. So it can't ever be about winning the argument. It can't ever be about anything other than converting that person and winning their heart for the Lord. Paul said, walk in wisdom so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. 
James, in James chapter 3 and verse 13, after he has cautioned his audience about being careful if they're going to teach the gospel because, just because of how powerful the tongue is, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then this line, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is what you and I are after, a harvest of righteousness. Now, again, sometimes we can go too far in the direction of wanting to be peaceable such that we don't even mention the judgment at all. But sometimes the most peaceable person there is meets a situation that calls for some stern words. It is Jesus himself, remember, who says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus to Peter. It is Jesus himself who drives the money changers and the merchants out of his father's temple. And it is, of course, God himself who's going to come, on the na- uh, uh, come in judgment on the nations and on all of us one day. But it's also God who is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's not one extreme or the other. We cannot be too soft or too hard. At different times, it's going to be compassion and tenderness that are required. At other times, it's a strong rebuke that's necessary. And it's difficult to know sometimes just exactly which one is is what's necessary in that moment. You're doing your best. Hopefully, you're praying your best, trying to get it right with that person. It is difficult to do what God asks of us and walk in wisdom so that I can know how to respond to each person. People are so different. It is difficult to know exactly how to respond to them. Which is why I've got to make sure that I've got my priorities in line. That it's certainly not about me. Certainly not about having some argument to pick with somebody. Proving my point, etc., etc. But it's about upholding God's law and wanting that person to follow it. Wanting that person, that soul. To serve their God. They're not an enemy. They're a brother or sister in Christ in the making. But they're also someone who's precious to the Lord. And who's about to go off that cliff. If I don't warn them. Um, Another aspect of being too firm. And kind of going to that extreme. Comes up in James chapter 4 and verse 11. James says, do not speak evil against one another, brethren. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. 
So who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, similar to Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged, people would like to take this passage well outside of its context and somehow justify not ever, ever talking with anybody in a judgmental way, not ever telling anybody that they are wrong, let alone that, that hell exists and that you don't want them to go there. So you can't even get to what God actually wants you to warn them about because you're not allowed to tell them that they're doing wrong in the first place, according to the way some folks use verses like these. Usually they'll use them out of context that way to condemn somebody who's trying to warn them about their lifestyle, which ironically is pronouncing judgment upon that person that's judging them. But let's not worry about sensibility. So to do that with James chapter 4, to do that with Matthew chapter 7, it's just to misuse those passages based, if you had nothing else, upon a passage like Ezekiel 33 that we read earlier, based upon several other passages that we could talk about, based upon the whole idea of there being a good news in the first place, you've got to go tell folks about it. And sometimes people aren't, aren't doing what, what the king wants them to do. And then also based upon just an awareness of what James and Matthew are trying to talk about. So with that said, what is James' point? His point is that I need to be very, very careful if I'm going to tell somebody the way that you're living, you are going to lose your soul. You are going to go to hell. Some people don't want to mention hell because they're being too soft. That's the problem Ezekiel 33 addresses. That's not what we're talking about. What I mean is this, um, years ago, I forget who it was that said it, but a preacher um, made an analogy that I didn't forget. He said, what is our role? What's our role? We are not the judge. James says it. We are not the judge. He says, what we are is the attorney. We're the lawyer. So you probably know the lawyers of the New Testament were called scribes. They were students and teachers and the upholders of God's law. Their job as, as lawyers, experts of the law of God, was to tell people who didn't know God's law what the law said. You and I are lawyers in that sense. We are not the final judge. We are not the lawgiver. We are telling people, here's what the law says. What is a part of becoming a Christian? Hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, believing it, repenting of the sins that it tells you you must no longer live in, confessing your faith in Christ as Christians did in the first century in the book of Acts and being baptized for the remission of your sins to have those sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Here's what the law says. I'm not God. I'm not the judge. But if you think you're fine, even though you haven't done what the New Testament teaches you, you've got to do for the forgiveness of your sins and you're sticking to that. Here's what the law says. You're telling me I can't stay in my second marriage if I want to follow God. Here's what the law says. I had an email with somebody about that just a couple of weeks ago. They wanted to know if the condition of their marriage was right before the Lord or not. I asked them about the nature of their marriage. Easy to sympathize with what they'd done when they were younger, when they were foolish, when they weren't at all concerned about spiritual things. They'd been married and divorced and married and divorced at least a handful of times. 
Now they were married to someone with whom they are, at least at the moment, happy. And they're trying to get back into serving the Lord. The reason this person was emailing me is because they'd emailed a number of groups around the area. And all of them had told them what the scriptures say about that. That you don't have a right to be with this person because of these divorces. And I didn't even actually get to that particular point. I put down a set of passages. I said, are you by chance familiar with these verses? I don't mean to condescend. I don't know your familiarity with scripture. I'd mentioned they hadn't been faithful for a long time. Do you know these verses? I got back about a two-line reply. Yes, I know them. Thanks for your time. Trying to show them what the law says. We didn't even really get into a discussion of the, the heartbreak of what's being asked of them. But here's what the law says. It's God's law. It's God's verses. His words, not even mine yet. So you're telling me all these people in all these different churches, they're lost because they do this that they shouldn't do, or they don't do what they should do, et cetera, et cetera, because of simple things like like the ways in which they worship, the ways in which they spend God's money, the activities that they got get up to, that sort of thing. I, it's staggering to start to think about how many people attend various congregations that I believe, according to scriptures, are, are worshiping and living and acting unscripturally I mean you pick just the congregations that are within a mile or two here I think we're probably talking about thousands of people moms, dads, brothers sisters, sons, daughters every one of them a soul God created so quite truly it ought to be with us that we cannot tell you how much we wish to be dead wrong here is the law What else am I supposed to do? Here it is. So even when it comes to warning people about the judgment, that's my role. That's your role. That's our role together. Warning people about what God's law says. And we ought never be a people who makes it about us. And we ought never be a people who refuses to do this. And I don't know about you, but... It's hard to speak out. We need to be careful that when we do speak out, we don't set ourselves up like the judge. I don't have that right. It's God's law that they need to adhere to. So you got two extremes. I'll ask you to read it with me one more time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, which is to say don't waste an opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how much salt do you put on your meals? The various different things that you eat. If you eat salt, if you ever put salt on your food, or if you cook and you're adding seasonings and whatnot, it all depends on the meal, right? I don't like a whole lot of pepper, for example, or salt on my yogurt. But I do like a ridiculous amount of it on scrambled eggs. So I've got to be considerate and wise and season the conversation that I'm having with that particular person. Considering as best I can all the information about them and their experiences and their personality. As best I can. 
Now, I'm the vessel. God's word is what has power. But he has given me a part to play in this, a responsibility in this. And I've got to do the best that I can while also trusting God to supply all the rest. So again, a lot of what you and I are talking about are matters of judgment. But it is important to to learn the variety of what the Bible has to say about the matter of teaching those who are lost and those who are in sin. Appreciating the spectrum of responses that you see there and and putting that spectrum to use as we're uh, dealing with each particular circumstance so we'll know what's necessary. As for the circumstance of this morning, if you're not a Christian, then there is nothing that's more important for you to appreciate right now than that you, our friend, are lost. But also that you certainly don't have to be. And that's what makes the good news of Jesus Christ so good. You don't have to be lost. We don't want you to be. And God certainly doesn't want you to be. He is, as we read in Second Peter 3, verse 9, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I hope you'll decide this morning that you're going to reach for that repentance and follow God and be baptized in the name of his son. Won't you please become a Christian this morning? Or if you are one living in sin, won't you please repent before it is everlasting too late? Let's stand and sing.